Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Hello, welcome to Political Currency, our very special Q&A edition between Christmas and New Year. Loads of questions, including from some very special guests. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. First time we've done this. and It's amazing who sent questions in. Who would have known all these people were listeners to our podcast? Who'd have known? Let's get on with the questions. Hello, Ed and George. It's Rachel Reeves here. Both of you spent many years working at the Treasury. During that time, what was your best and worst Christmas at the Treasury and why? Rachel Reeves. Mm. Sending us in a question. Isn't that brilliant? I know she's a, a regular listener. She is a bit of a fan, and I think both of us think she's been doing a pretty good job this year. She's had a good year this year. She's had a good year. She had one knock, didn't she, where she was accused of plagiarism. And I thought that was, you know, just for her, evidence that she's now in the major league. You know, people are going to take pot shots at her from the conservative side, but also from her own side. Because when you're at the top of the pyramid, there's basically only one way to go. But uh, she might be there for a long time. So shall we answer her question? Well, I, I think the best Christmas, I was trying to think this, at the best Christmas I think was the first one, just because I had become Chance Exchequer. It's something I've been working on for so many years. And I remember having a row with the permanent secretary about the Christmas tree in the atrium at the Treasury. So we were trying to make austerity cuts across Whitehall. We were trying to say, you know, we're in favour of value for money. And I discovered that the Christmas tree that the Treasury had every year was costing thousands of pounds because they were getting some special company to come in and put it up and decorate it and then take it down. And so I said, that's ridiculous. We're going to save money. You can just go to a market and buy a Christmas tree. This turned out to be a complete nightmare, of course, in practice because we actually had to go. My special advisors had to try and buy this tree. Then we had to bring it in. Then no one could pass the health and safety rules for putting up Christmas baubles in a government department. So I ended up putting up some of the Christmas decorations myself. And then, of course, we all went away on holiday. And then there was a question of who's going to get rid of this tree. We did save money for the taxpayer, but the whole thing was a nightmare. And I think the permanent secretary looked at me with a wry smile saying, you know what, Chancellor, why didn't you just leave the uh, Christmas tree to me in the future? Look, if that was your best Christmas, I'm looking forward to your worst one. Our best one was also definitely the first one. 1997, we'd been in, in opposition for so long and had a small Christmas event in the Chancellor's flat. Sarah Brown was there, Gordon's close staff. I always dress up as Father Christmas, give out mm. presents. You used to uh, do that at the House of Commons as I well. I did that for 10 years at the House of Commons um, mm. as the Father Christmas. So I, I've been Father Christmas in lots of different settings. We would sing kind of hymns and carols and we would tell Gordon's jokes because he sure. always told the same jokes. And it was his job to then say, 
the punchline at the end and everybody would laugh hugely loudly. Nobody as much as him. And we were saying this just the other day, you and I, that people often didn't see the human side of him. And that's a pity. He liked his uh, glass of champagne all round. He always liked a glass of champagne. We always would. See, only, he was the true champagne socialist. I'll tell you the only, only drink he drank. <laughs> as the shadow chancellor, I was always trying to get people to write that what I knew to be the case, which was that Gordon Brown's favourite drink was champagne. But he used to buy it very cheap in massive job lots in his flat with just basically kind of huge boxes of fairly cheap champagne. Yeah. But, you know. Not a, not a Bollinger no. Bolshevik. So what's your worst moment? I'll tell you the kind of most difficult politically was 2012 because, you know, that had been a really difficult year for me as Chancellor. Basically, the plan looked like it was off track. We thought the economy was in recession, although later it turned out it hadn't been, but that didn't matter, you know, for the purposes of this. It looked like we were in a double-dip recession. We had had me being booed at the Olympics. It was all, you know, it was a pretty horrific year. And Going into 2013, I'd had a kind of conversation with David Cameron, which was like, are we going to be able to sustain this economic plan? We're coming under real pressure. We're being lots of the natural supporters of our plan to reduce the deficit are starting to peel off. And it was sort of the darkest hour before the economic and political dawn, because it was in early 2013 that actually the economy suddenly turned around, that we started to get the GDP growth, and everyone started to say, on at least my side of the argument, your plan's working. But that Christmas of 2012 was definitely the darkest hour. Well, I can tell you, um, I have a, a worse moment when we were at the Treasury. I think it was really early on. So it was either Christmas 97 or Christmas 98. I'm not quite sure which. We'd flown out to Italy, where my mum and dad lived at the time, Yvette and I. In the middle of the night, I woke up with a massive pain in my arm, lying on the floor of the bedroom. And Yvette then said, what are you doing? And um, I realised I'd had a nightmare. And I said to her, Tony Blair was driving a bus down the middle of the road straight at me. And the only way not to be run over by Tony Blair was to throw myself across the room against a wardrobe, smashed into the wardrobe, had a bruise, you know, twice the size of a cricket ball on my arm. Well, you'd really thrown yourself against I had against thrown <laughs> myself in my sleep out of the bed, across the room, into a wardrobe. And the next morning, Yvette said to me, you know, that she said, I mean, she didn't say to me, why was Tony Blair trying to run you over? She just said, why was Tony Blair driving a bus? Like that was the question she should have been asking. And so you know, I'm with Yvette. I mean, we can all understand why he wants to run you I over. Know. It's not quite clear why he's chosen the bus. So we got back after Christmas and I told Gordon Brown and Sue and I this story. And Gordon said, but Ed, did you throw yourself to the left or the right? And I said, well, it was my left arm. I think I must have thrown myself to the left. And Gordon said, tell no one. And uh, that was my worst moment. There we are, Rachel. That's a kind of, um, thank you. oh my God, streaming back. Thank you very much, Rachel Reeves. Now, I wonder who this next question is from. This is Jeremy from Surrey. And my question is, if chancellors are particularly brilliant, can their budgets win elections? And if so, how? Oh, there's a man who needs to know. Jeremy from Surrey and sounds like Jeremy from the Treasury to me. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt sends us in a question. Excellent. I think he's had a pretty good year, actually. He has. He started, look, I think he started the year with huge challenges, but he was the guy sorting out the mess of Truss and Quarteng. Difficult year on the economy, but he's still afloat and he's still got a strategy. And so he's not had a big knock this year, has he? No. I mean, I think he, you know, he'll be pretty satisfied with the way things are gone. And he ends up doing an autumn statement 
where he's you know cutting taxes and doing some of the growth measures he wants rather than firefighting. Let's go to his question though. You know, obviously, it's the case, Jeremy, that over a period of time, budgets make a massive difference to the offer that parties have at a general election and governments offer the electorate. But I think your question is, can a single budget deliver victory? I guess my answer would be probably not. You know, I'm a great believer in politics that, you know, people who are looking for the sort of single with one leap, we can jump out of the hole are usually looking in vain. But when something's close, when there's a close contest, then obviously the pre-election budget is critical. And the best example in my adult lifetime was Norman Lamont's 1992 budget, where he basically filleted Labour's plans and nicked all the good ideas they had and left the shadow chancellor, John Smith, with just the gristle, basically, the unpopular things, which John Smith, as I understand it, sort of ploughed on and delivered in a shadow budget a few days later. And then the Tories ruthlessly went after that in the election campaign that followed immediately after that with those uh, double whammy posters. And it became, you know, the mythology of the shadow budget that lost the election, the election winning budget from Lamont that outmaneuvered Labour, you know, that sits in my mind as the best example of that. It's not, I mean, in 2015, I didn't really have the option of doing a big giveaway pre-election budget because I was in coalition with the Liberal Democrats who wouldn't let me do that. We did some some things in the 2015 spring budget, but it wasn't the kind of classic pre-election budget you would give if you weren't in a coalition and you had a complete freedom of manoeuvre. I think you're right to say that it's probably not the budget itself which makes the difference. The question is, is the direction of politics going in the right direction? Is the budget reinforcing that? Are there things you can do to kind of emphasise that direction? And you know, there were doubts about Labour's credibility before the March 92 budget. And Norman Lamont was skillful in putting more pressure on John Smith. If you then go forward to 97, uh, Ken Clark's budget, there was no chance he could turn things around because the zeitgeist was just going against him. Two examples I was thinking, 2001, we set out a 10-year plan for the National Health Service, paved the way for the election campaign to be about schools and hospitals first. And so that definitely was reinforcing the, the message. 2005, was when um, the Gershon Review, which was a review into finding efficiency savings, I think that budget, we said, here is our, whatever it was, 30, 35 billion pounds worth of savings, slightly undercut the Howard Letwin argument that they could cut public spending without cutting public services because we'd done all of the efficiency yeah, savings. Yeah, I was the shadow chief secretary and right. I had to basically totally cut the ground from underneath our feet. Exactly. But then I, I made sure that was never going to happen again. So five years later, I went and got Peter Gershon to, to, to got the same guy to do our efficiency report when I was shadow chancellor in the 2010 election. And so when Labour attacked it, I said, but I got the guy you got. I got, I got Mr. You know, I got Mr. by then, surprisingly, Sir Peter Gershon to uh, do the report. Thank you very much. But I think that, that. What, what that tells you is that if you have got politics going in your direction, the budget can really help supercharge that. And uh, you can use the budget, not just with measures, but the argument to strengthen your position. But if politics is not on your side, wait until the budget leaves it too late. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for that question. Right, let's have uh, a question just from one of our regular listeners, not living in the Treasury or hoping to live in the Treasury. This is Chris, and he's asked us this question. 
since holidays are for fond memories, could you guys share the first times you met your important political partners? What was it like the day, George, you first met David Cameron or the first time Ed was introduced to Yvette? Oh, fond memories. I'm not actually married to David Cameron, no. by the way. <laughs> anyway, Ed, when did you meet Yvette? Tell us about that starstruck moment. Well, we'd been married for 25 years. The first time I really met her properly was when I'd left the Financial Times to go and work for Gordon Brown. And I arrived in Parliament to go into my new office. And it turns out that my new office I'm going to share with a young researcher called Yvette Cooper. And Gordon Brown's deputy was Harriet Harman. And Yvette and Harriet decided it would be good if she shared an office with the new economist coming from the Financial Times. Now, whether this was because they wanted to kind of be involved in the policy discussions or whether they had, you know, did Yvette have a plan? Was Harriet being a matchmaker? The one thing we can say with absolutely certainty is that Gordon Brown was totally oblivious. He had absolutely no idea whether there was any so who made plan. So who made the first move, you or Yvette? Um, I think it was mutual, actually. I think it just kind of just naturally occurred. It was just romance. Oh, an office romance. It was an office romance. And then an in-office romance. Well, yeah. And then... Um, <laughs> anyway, it's a wonderful... Oh, seems like a wonderful oh, glow, marriage. Glow. Uh, oh, and he's then, got a big smile on his face. Now, and David actually. Cameron, when did you first meet him? It's a, it's a heart-rending story. You should get the Hovis music out. <laughs> when I arrived in the Conservative Research Department in my early 20s, essentially fresh out of university, I'd done a stump stint on newspapers... But I turned up at sort of Tory HQ. David Cameron wasn't there at that point. He had left. He'd been a senior advisor. But people were all talking about this young guy, David Cameron. He's, he's older than me. But, you know, he, he was this star. He was this guy who everyone was already talking about as the next but one Tory leader. I think I first bumped into him at a kind of one of those Westminster drinks receptions. But when I really got to know him was after we both got elected to Parliament People think we were all mates at university or we went to the same school. That's not true. I really got to know him when we were both young MPs. And crucially, I used to drive to and from my home and I used to give him a lift uh, to and from work at the House of Commons. And then I took up cycling to try and get fit when my perennial campaigns to try and get fit. And uh, that forced him onto his bike as well. And we used to have these great bicycle rides across Hyde Park from our homes to the House of Commons, and that's where we mapped out the future of the Tory party. From Notting Hill to Parliament. But wasn't this the thing where he used to cycle from Notting Hill to Parliament and then have a government car drive behind him with his shoes and his red box? Well, not once we got into the cycle paths of the park. Oh, I see. Okay, so the car drove round, round the edge. <laughs> yeah. That was not the best day when uh, someone took a photograph of that. So moving on from important political partners, we have a question from an important work partner of mine. Hello, Susanna Reid here from Good Morning Britain. My question is, which is the most significant political television interview that you have either seen or been involved with? Perhaps it changed your opinion about an issue or changed the direction of a policy or a politician's fortunes. 
Gosh, well, it's a great honour to work with Susanna Reid. I sit next to her for three hours, Monday to Wednesday, on Good Morning Britain. She's a real professional. She's, I mean, she's very, very good. Brilliant. I'm, I'm, actually, I did an interview with her not that long ago, and I thought, God, you are, this is a tough interview. This is tough, but fair. Tough and fair. And we, the interesting thing is we tag team. So it's not like a Andrew Marl or Kunzberg interviewing a politician. We do it together. We move between um, the two of us asking the questions and she'll go in on an issue and then I'll pick it up. And Are you a good cop or bad cop? No, I think she's tough and forensic and she's very good at speaking for the viewers. She really kind of feels deeply in her what the viewers will be thinking and worrying about. And uh, I don't know if you remember, she did a brilliant interview with Boris Johnson where she took him to task on the basis of what viewers wanted her to ask. So many people want to know, are you honest, Prime Minister? I think you, yes. And I think that uh, the best way to, to judge that is to look at uh, what this government says it's going to do and what it does. And, and we'll what, get to that in a minute. What, I just want a matters. straight answer. You're, you're an honest speaker. Yes. This is a really hard question I've been thinking because what makes a great TV interview... I was actually thinking back in history, the interviews which changed the way interviews were done. So if you remember back in the Falklands War in 1982, there was a famous interview which Robin Day was doing with the Defence Secretary, John Knott. And he, breaking with past tradition, where, because often interviews were very deferential, he kind of really went on the attack. And John Knott, on a live interview, got up and walked out of the studio. But why should the public on this issue as regards the future of the Royal Navy, believe you, a transient uh, here today and, if I may say so, gone tomorrow politician, rather brilliant. than a senior officer of many years. I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm fed up with this interview, really. It's a ridiculous ruling. Well, thank you, Mr Knott. He then called his autobiography, Here Today, Gone Tomorrow. Another one which goes in the same category, you remember Jeremy Paxman in 1997 interviewing Michael Howard, when he asked the same question 10 or 12 times and Michael Howe just couldn't answer the question. Mr Marriott was not suspended. Did you threaten to overrule him? I have accounted for my decision to dismiss Derek Lewis Did you threaten to overrule him? detail before the House of Commons. I note you're not answering the question whether you threatened well, to the, overrule him. And I think from that moment on, any politician knew going into an interview if somebody asked you a question you couldn't answer, they might just ask it again and again and again. So deference went with John Knott and then kind of that Paxman-esque persistence started with the Michael Howard interview. There must be others where an interview has changed the way political interviews are forever after. But those are two which come to my mind. Mm, it's a very good question, Susanna. I've, I've thought of two examples which I was connected with, but I didn't take part in. And there are two interviews with David Cameron. So just to pick up on your last one, the the Cameron interview with Jeremy Paxman in the Tory leadership contest, where he basically gets the better of Paxman. Paxman starts out with a question, do you know what a slippery nipple is? And of course, it's a, not a question that anyone is prepared for. In fact, it's a question about a cocktail in a nightclub that David Cameron had some shares in. But Cameron rises above it and says it's exactly that kind of question that's making our politics look ridiculous. And it really put Paxman in his box and it really established Cameron's leadership credentials. And then fast forward quite a few years, I thought one of the most consequential interviews was by James Landale of the BBC with David Cameron in his home in Oxfordshire. In his kitchen. Actually, let's hear it. That he had a sell-by date. Would you go for a third term? No, I think, um, you know, 
I'm standing for a full second term. The full five years, but no the, third the term. Thir the third term is uh, not something I'm contemplating. Terms are like shredded weed. Two are wonderful. Three might just be too many. Now, this answer, I think you can argue, has an earthquake effect on British politics because Cameron is saying, I'm not going to fight the election after next. Now, you might say, well, who cares about that? It's a long way ahead. And uh, he was actually trying to get away from the kind of Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher answers, which is, I'm going to go on and on and it looks you make you look incredibly arrogant. When I spoke to him after the interview, he said, you know, I'd also given some boring answers. I was trying to sound more human. The interview wasn't going very well. But it had a massive effect because it meant after the general election, which we won, suddenly everyone knew Cameron was going. And so the Tory leadership contest almost starts immediately after that general election, even though he's just won the first Tory majority in decades. And when you get to the Brexit referendum, it means that Boris Johnson knows there's going to be a Tory leadership contest. He probably thinks that I'm going to be his most likely opponent. I'm involved in the Remain campaign. And you remember Boris is wondering whether to go vote, leave or remain. He writes two articles, blah, blah, blah. But I'm sure that in his mind, he's thinking there's going to be a Tory leadership contest coming. And I think if David Cameron had not given that interview, Boris Johnson would have been thinking, oh, Cameron's going to be here for years. He's probably going to win this referendum. I'm not going to get a job in his cabinet. My time will pass and so on. So what Tory and Labour prime ministers have discovered is the moment you say you're going, you've effectively gone. What so much of the power of a prime minister is their patronage and the promise that they're going to be there for a long time to come. But as you said, David Cameron was trying to avoid the Tony Blair thing of saying on and on, and actually either saying I will go on and on, or I'm not going to go on and on. Both of them are a problem. Fundamentally, you can't ever put a shelf life on your leadership. It's always got to be a surprise hmm. when you go. In the 2005 election, when Tony Blair was quite unpopular, Gordon Brown much more popular. You remember the famous moment where they... The did, ice cream. The ice cream. In Kent, wasn't it? That's right. There was a discussion as to whether Tony Blair should say he would be standing down early in the next parliament, you know, implicitly giving way to Gordon Brown. And all of us, Gordon included, all said to Alistair Campbell and Philip Gould, no, Tony Blair should not say that because if he does, it will just mean that there will be continual speculation from the moment after the but election. But there was, there was. From the moment the 2005 election was over, it was all about when's Gordon coming in. But it would have been even worse if Tony Blair had actually confirmed that. That was the um, our feeling at the time. Anyway, really good question from Susanna because it kind of provokes lots and lots of thoughts and memories uh, for us. Brilliant. So we need to go for a break now. And then after that, I have procured a special surprise for George. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So, George, I have a question here from Stephen, who wants to ask you about something close to your heart. 
Hello, Ed, and hello, George. Now, um, I've got a question for you. I think, George, you and I are on the same page. Probably not something that happens that often. As regards the Parthenon marbles and their, their return to Athens, to the new Acropolis Museum, your fabulous sister museum, if you like, in Athens. It's been a long time that they've been in London, and for some of those years, for good reason, in, in the 70s, uh, Athens was hideously polluted, and uh, a lot of the existing uh, marbles on the hillside and outside in the city were corroded. But that's all been sorted out, and there's no fantastic fantastic museum to place them there. There's this apparent legal problem, and I'd like you to talk about that because you obviously know more about it than I do. It's also true, isn't it, that uh, these things can be nodded through amendments to laws. The Australian Constitution, the actual document of uh, you know, formulating the nation of Australia, was in the British Museum, and it fell foul of the same law. It couldn't be removed because of museum law. So the law was changed easily, just nodded through in three minutes in an afternoon in the House of Commons. And as we've seen from Rwanda, <laughs> this is not a government that necessarily wants to keep to law and is quite happy to try and mangle and change it. So without getting political about this, I just think if you and I agree that it would be wonderful for Greece to show them and to have an arrangement with the British Museum that enriches both institutions, it would be great. And that uh, using the law as an excuse surely isn't good enough. I've made this question too long. But anyway, loved you both. Stephen Fry. Sounds persuasive (laughs) to me. Stephen Fry. Uh, I was doing an interview with him on Good Morning Britain about his new show coming on ITV. He's doing a a British version of Jeopardy on ITV, which is an amazing American show. And at the end, we had a chat about the Elgin Marbles. And um, he said, I'd love to ask George about this. I said, I've got the perfect opportunity. Here we are. Yeah, so my first of all... um, I'm a massive fan of Stephen Fry, even if he isn't a massive fan of George Osborne. (laughs) And I remember as a teenager going to see him do stand-up comedy with Hugh Laurie. And he has written some great books about Greek mythology, or rather brought the Greek myths to a modern audience. And he has campaigned for the return of the Elgin Marbles, and I am chairman of the British Museum. Here, what he's pointing to is the fact that there is room for agreement. And I hope we can do a deal between the British Museum and the Greek government and the Acropolis Museum, which many people will have been to in Athens. And that, that's a deal that allows us to share the viewing of the marbles, the great sculptures that used to go around the Acropolis in ancient Greece, not in a way that challenges anyone's fundamental claims. Greece will always say that they're rightfully Greece's, and the law is very clear that they are the possession of the British Museum. And... Uh, We've heard from this Conservative government that that's not going to change. We've heard from the Starmer putative Labour government that that's not going to change. So what can we do? Well, I think we could reach an agreement whereby a portion of the marbles are at any one time on display in Athens in what Stephen correctly calls a brilliant museum. I was there only a few months ago. And at the same time, some wonderful Greek treasures that have never left Greece come and are on display in the British Museum like the Mask of Agamemnon, for example. And we both share these wonderful objects and millions of people in both cities can come and see them. So it's not an easy deal to pull off. This is a row that's been going on for 200 years, as Stephen knows, and if there was a simple solution, it would have been had. But I'm reasonably optimistic. Certainly the trustees of the museum are very much up for a deal. I think the Greek government is very much up for a deal. 
And even if the British government is not speaking to the Greek Prime Minister, the British Museum is. And Stephen is right to say, isn't he, that if the government and the opposition wanted to, you could actually get a bill through Parliament very quickly and change the law. Are you saying that you don't need a law change in order to, to do the deal you want to do? So the law as presently written, written in the 1960s, says the British Museum cannot return any objects, can't return it. And by the way, we don't want to permanently return important parts of our collection because we believe in what the museum offers, which is a chance to see all these great civilizations together. But more to the point, in the last few weeks, both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer have confirmed they are not going to change the law. So we have to operate within the law. And within the law, we can come out with this really ambitious proposal to share the marbles, to make sure that a portion are always on display in Greece. And as I say, some fantastic treasures come the other way. And it's, you know, to have people like Stephen Fry in favour of that, it's probably not the solution he ultimately wants, which is the marbles permanently returned to Athens. But it's a, you know, a really progressive way forward. We'll have to check that um, Stephen's going to back that, but I hope he does. And that sounds like a sensible way forward. If I was um, advising Keir Starmer, I'd say, go for it. He's the local MP for the British Museum, of course. Oh, uh, right. So he, Has he so made representations? He, no, I've got that. You know, it's a good case of writing to your local MP. Oh, I think that's a very good idea. <laughs> uh, anyway, now we've got a question here from one of our regular listeners, Yvonne. Hi, Ed and George. Do you have any memorable experiences from your first general election as a candidate? Love the podcast. Thanks, Yvonne. We're heading into uh, election year, so... Uh, Good to kind of rake up these old memories and there'll be some new ones being made in the next 12 months by a first-time candidates. I was a first-time candidate in 2005. We decided that we needed to have an office in the town centre to show we were there. And there was a, a shop which had recently closed and which we rented for, for the month of the election. And um, it was called Bear Essentials. And it was a, a shop which sold exotic lingerie. But all the laundry had, had gone and we had to take the sign down Bear Essentials and put up uh, Ed Ball's Labour candidate. And that's where we met and did all our work. And there was like, you know, coffee and tea and biscuits and stuff. And then about a week into the election campaign, my uh, campaign uh, coordinator said that when they came in in the morning, they found kind of crumbs all over the floor and half-eaten biscuits. And it became clear that there was a visitor, some kind of, you know, likely rodent. So we had to ring the council office and they sent down a, a rat catcher who put down um, poison. About three or four days later, this terrible smell started in the office. And so it was clear that this had worked and the rat had expired. But where was it? And nobody could go in the campaign office. It smelled so badly. So we had to get the, the rat expert back who started taking off panels and finally got into behind a panel. And there was an expired rat lying in a nest of bras and other exotic laundry. I got elected three months later. I died, died for a good cause. It died for a good cause. Three months later, the shop reopened as a tattoo parlour. Well, I do. My first election campaign in Tatton, it was the first time I stood for Parliament. Tatton is in Cheshire. I was actually canvassing in Wilmslow and a woman, a rather attractive woman in lingerie did open the door to me and invited me in, but I was uh, I was sensible enough to say uh, no, I'm not going to come in. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I do also remember we had all the Manchester United footballers in my constituency, so I tried repeatedly to canvass the Beckhams who were living in uh, near Alderley Edge, 
And I knew they voted because, you you know, as an MP or a candidate, you can tell whether people vote in elections, not how they vote, but whether they vote. So I, en- you know, would endlessly go to a place called Nether Alderley to see if they were in, but sadly they weren't. But I did get one of Manchester United's top stars and I started talking to him in front of his like Porsche and his Ferrari and his Hummer and all this in a road called Fletson Road in Wilmslow. And he, he was not that interested in politics. I said, yeah, but you do know, you know, if Labour get in again, then, you know, your taxes are going to go up. And like all good footballers, he had an eye for the money. And he said, really? What, they're going to put on my taxes? I said, yeah, definitely. I said, when, when's this election then? So I got one of Manchester United stars to uh, vote Tory in that election. It's interesting you're not giving us the name, but by the sound of it, he was a right winger, not a left winger. <laughs> Very good. I do remember, in a subsequent election, I was canvassing in all the edge, and then suddenly, out of the blue, this man dressed as William Hague came up and went, oh, hello, George, it's William Hague. <laughs> and there was a TV camera, and it was Rory Bremner dressed up as William Hague. And I didn't really know what to do. I couldn't, like, run away you know and so I had to go on canvassing down this road I had my children with me and everything and you know they were having a day out on the campaign trail and I had to sort of make out that I was having this conversation with William Egg, even though it was Rory Bremner even though it was going to be broadcast on television so I thought that tested my professional skills in an election right we've had a clarification and you know we're always here to stand corrected from David David Laws. The David Laws. The David Laws. And he picks us up on the discussion we had a few weeks ago about the famous letter that he received from his uh, Labour predecessor, Liam Byrne, saying that there's no money left. Let's hear what David has to say. I'm looking forward to hearing this. It's now about 14 years since Liam Byrne's famous no money letter and it amazes me how much attention it still gets and how many myths surround the letter. The letter was handed to me on my second day as Chief Secretary in the Treasury and other than thinking it was both slightly amusing but also slightly ill-judged, I didn't see its political significance at all at the time and I put it in the drawer of my desk. Four days later, George Osborne was announcing the new Office of Budget Responsibility and I didn't have a major part in the press conference, but George did invite me at the end of the press conference to say a few words. All of the journalists looked a little bit bored and I suddenly remembered Liam's letter sitting in my desk and thought I would mention it to throw a bit of colour into the press conference. I hadn't actually got the letter with me because I hadn't been intending to use it until then. And so I actually misquoted what he wrote as there is no money left rather than no money, which is what he actually wrote. I still didn't see quite the political significance of this, but I should have realised when I noticed a bit of a twinkle in the eye of Nick Robinson, who was sitting in the front row. By the time I got back up to my office in the Treasury, all hell had broken loose. Every newspaper wanted a copy of the letter for their front page. Andy Coulson from Number 10 was on the phone instantly asking me to hand it over to him to give to the press. And it was then that I realised the significance and began to feel rather uncomfortable for having mentioned it. So I refused to hand over the letter, but I did confirm and correct the wording as no money rather than no money left. Uh, So in fact, George Osborne had known nothing about it until I mentioned it and it wasn't a plan to release it. It wasn't a malicious leak, but just a bit of a miscalculation about the political significance that it would have. The letter is now sitting rather safely in 
the drawer of my office where it will remain. And I guess one day it will probably go to the National Archive or the Treasury Archive or perhaps the Churchill Archive at Cambridge. Hmm. Well, look, it's really good to have David set out his version of events and to clarify things from his perspective. And, you know, to say it wasn't intended, it was a miscalculation and listeners can listen to that and make their own minds up. But that is, um, you know, really clear for him. For me, the striking thing, which he explains there, is his misquoting of the letter. Because this was a letter originally intended to go from Liam Byrne to, to Philip Hammond, who was expected to be the Conservative um, Chief Secretary. And of course, the phrase no money is the shorthand for what Chief Secretaries say. You know, if you're the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, you have this whole line of cabinet ministers coming asking for money. And the thing you always have to say to them is, I hear what you're saying, Education Secretary, but I'm sorry, there's no money. And that makes sense. David Laws tells us he made a mistake and quoted the letter as no money left And of course, no money left means something completely different. But there was no money left. No, but it means that all the money has been (laughs) spent. You had, you'd spent it all. No, no, but I mean, as you know, George, that is preposterous and ridiculous. (laughs) And you know... You'd even started printing it. So you're saying that David Laws did misquote it in order to make this political point. This is actually the first... Well, so, I mean, this is revealing. And maybe you are right that that was what he intended. I don't Um, think... But what that does is, it's the Liberal Democrats trying to pin the global financial crisis on Labour spending. And is that what David Laws was intending to do with this misquoting of the letter? You're saying so. I was more inclined to take his view, which is he was a cock-up. No, I, I think David Laws, for the very first time I've heard this proper explanation of what happened, as he makes clear, I didn't know about this letter. And it's also clear that he just completely underestimated the impact it have. And, you know, I think he was a little bit sheepish about uh, revealing it as a result. But was it effective politically? My God. In fact, it's still being used by the Conservatives right to this day against Labour. And, you know, we're always up for Liberal Democrats helping the Conservatives keep Labour out of office. Well, the interesting thing is, of course, that David Laws... um was the kind of Liberal Democrat who probably did think that public spending was too high and wanted it to be to be cut. And he was also a Liberal Democrat who was very sceptical about tax credits. And um, the good thing is we're going to have a chance to discuss all of this because next week we are doing a special deep dive episode called Inside the Room, the Coalition. And we're going to be talking about those five days where the coalition was formed and the extent to which the Liberal Democrats decided in joining this coalition to sign up to your economic argument, whether, you know, David Laws, in his mind, having been discussing with you the fact there was no money left, decided to, um, by mistake, misquote Liam Byrne's letter in order to um, to emphasise that point. That's what we're going to be discussing. I think it's going to be really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And we're going to have and a special guest, but we shouldn't say who. No, we're going to have a special guest. It's also a first for us. We're going to dive into a bit of history that you and I were both intimately involved in. But we're also going to draw some lessons because, of course, as we head into this year, election year, uh, one of the big questions is going to be, can Keir Starmer get an overall majority? And if he doesn't, will he be in some kind of coalition with the Liberal Democrats or indeed even the Scottish Nationalists? So Really interesting. And the good thing is what we've decided to do is we're going to do this in two parts. So there's going to be the first part is going to drop at the weekend just before New Year, and then the second half at our normal slot on Thursday after New Year's Day. So um, 
a chance to relive some political history, something that both of us were right on the inside of. Now, talking about a voice from the recent past, your recent past, here's our final question. Hello, Ed and George. This is Cassie Jones from Strictly Come Dancing. My question to you is, who would win a dance-off between the two of you? Merry Christmas and keep dancing. <laughs> Katya from Strictly. Katya from Strictly, my partner on Strictly Come Dancing back in 2016. It was her first series and uh, she went on to win the second year and she's been doing brilliantly ever since. I was only in one dance-off ever and I lost it to Rob Rinder in week 10 of that 2016 series. So uh, if there was to be a dance-off, you know, my kind of revealed outcome is to lose. And I must say, having seen you dance at your wedding, your first dance with Thea, you danced, you know, with a grace and an elegance, which um, makes me wonder whether you might actually be a bit of a dancing dark horse. Well, you're probably the first and last person who's ever said that about my dancing, but that's very good. Whether you could pull it off in sequence in Blackpool is another question. There was a good moment when um, Things Can Only Get Better was played at our wedding, and uh, that brought lots of energy onto the dance floor. I don't think I would win a dance-off with you, Ed, because I was nothing other than gobsmacked and impressed by your performance on Strictly Come Dancing. I've been asked on that show and I just look at it and I go, there is absolutely no way I could do that. It's just a complete non-starter as far as I'm concerned. There but maybe actually- but maybe that's, you know, I'm just being uh, a bit pathetic. And we, I'm full of admiration that you did it. So thank you very much indeed to all of our listeners, the famous ones and everybody else for um, sending in their questions. We've really enjoyed um, spending time answering all of them today. It's been great. And please keep your questions and comments coming in as we get into the new year and we will be tackling the big political subjects of 2024. You can always send your question or your voice note to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Goodbye and we really hope you enjoy our Coalition Year's deep dive. And have a happy new year. Happy new year. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.